0: Uh, Let me tell you a little background to the song, because it is such a blessing. I mean, who who does not feel blessed? Backing up to turn off the fan, although it does feel nice on my head. (laughs) How many of you are not blessed when you can respond to the question, does the Father truly love us? And to say, he does. And from the core of your heart, conviction mean it when you respond that way. Or in the first verse, when it says, do you feel the shadows deepen? We don't often get to sing about that in worship, to be that frankly honest and to say, we do. But do you know that all the dark can't stop the light from getting through? We do. All right. So it was written by Andrew Peterson for a congregation to sing responsively, Like Pastor Sam said, worship is responsive. It's really the first of the songs that he's written like that. And I've enjoyed his music for many years. He's typically a singer-songwriter Will write a song that could be sung by a group on stage rather than in a a local church. Uh, But in this case, he just felt moved based on what he read in Revelation 5 to write this song. Um, I first heard it about a year ago. Uh, I was feeling a bit down, and my wife knew that, and she watched a video that he produced based on this song. And she called me to the bedroom and said, hey, look at this. So I watched the video that he filmed to go along with this song that we just sang, Is He Worthy? Have any of you ever seen that video? One, two, my wife, okay. <laughs> All right, so let me tell you a little bit about what he experienced with that. He, he filmed it in a, a beautiful church. I uh, started with him playing the piano and singing that line. Do you feel the world is broken? And then there's a, a choir, invisible, you can't see them. They respond, we do. And then it swells. You can see the musicians playing their stringed instruments. And then, when it gets to the part where it says, "Where they sing from every people and tribe," you, you see the choir up there, and it and it scans by them, and the music swells like it doesn't here. And we're transported to the throne of Jesus, and we say, "He is worthy." Well, here's what Andrew Peterson found out after he shot the video. He said on his blog, and this is him him speaking now, a few days ago, with the help of the good people at the Gospel Coalition, I released a music video for a song called, Is He Worthy? And just hours later, I was sitting in my office with tears in my eyes, but not the good kind of tears. He said among the very kind comments on social media were some painfully negative ones, pointing out that there was a conspicuous lack of racial diversity in the video. Someone actually said, man, that's a lot of white people in one video. Others said they, they wouldn't or couldn't share it with friends of color because it would cause them pain. The irony was that the song is based on one of the most gloriously inclusive passages in scripture, Revelation 5, which says, from every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom of priests to God to reign with the sun. The camera swings past all the white faces just before I sing that line. And this is the very definition of painfully ironic. What was meant to be a video drawing attention to the glory of Jesus, one that opened the door for all people to praise Him, had become, for some, a source of grief." Now, I don't bring that up to squash the benefit that we get from that song, but I think it shows that anything in this earth is a bit tainted by the already but not yet realities of Jesus and His eternity and His accomplishments for us. Already we are made right and holy, and already we are forgiven of all our sins, both the overt ones that we actually do to hurt other people and the covert things that we just miss, that we maybe by ignorance don't even know that we've done, but that have ended up hurting someone else. In this case, it was a case where people from various backgrounds, various colors, various languages were a little bit feeling left out but I think in this case, maybe rightly so. Now he had some people write him, Andrew Peterson did, and they said, Andrew, you didn't control who showed up on the day of the choir casting. You know, it wasn't like you were saying to folks of color, which is a phrase they use, no, I'm sorry, this is only for white people. You are saying that. And this is a song about Jesus. But nonetheless, I was instructed by what Andrew Peterson realized, because I realized something too. Watching the video, It completely didn't dawn on me that there were no diversity of people in the choir singing that song, but how appropriate it would have been because of that. But you know what? I'm white. And when I see white people, I just think, hey, you're just like me. If I happen to see people who don't look just like me, what's going through my mind in that moment? What should be going through my mind? What should we be as a church ready to act upon as a result of having spent time in this series, Crossover, The Gospel of Reconciliation. Over these weeks, we've been attempting, really without having complete insight into every heart, we've been attempting to raise the issue, first of all, of reconciliation with God. We must be reconciled with God. 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. That's the cry of the Apostle Paul, and that is our mission. We are his ambassador sent out in the ministry of reconciliation, both in the church and to seek those in the world whom God is seeking. And we go out and we evangelize and we, we tell them the same message. But sometimes we have found that there are barriers to that here in this country. There are barriers to that as we go out on mission. There are barriers to that as we go into other countries, and I think all of us over time find, perhaps like Andrew Peterson does in this, in this article, we're, we're overwhelmed perhaps by certain things that cause us to miss the reality of what Jesus wants in this world now. Revelation 5 is a corrective for that. Revelation 5 draws our attention to the Lamb who has conquered and is worthy. And our worship of Him, when our worship is right, We'll align our priorities here on this earth to be his priorities. Today, we're going to take a final crossover, and the title of the message is The Final Crossover. It's a part of my ironic and dry sense of humor that in the book of Revelation, talking about going to heaven, I call it the final crossover. You would do me a favor if you would do a quick chuckle. <laughs> Thank you. But, but truly speaking, if we're talking about crossing over any boundary that's in front of us... To reach someone, we have to recognize what that is so that we can go over it and minister to them and love them as Christ has loved us. You think about how He crossed over all boundaries to reach you. Why would a Jew want anything to do with you unless you're a Jew, truly speaking? But he led the charge throughout all of his ministry, as Pastor Sam showed us from John 4, to even go to Samaria, where those who had intermarried with foreigners lived in that region and were completely pagan and lost, but he loved them and saw in one woman that everyone else had rejected, a disciple. She's there in heaven now. Let's read about it. If you will... Uh, go there in the Bibles that Pastor Sam uh, drew your attention to, to page 1030. That's what it is in the church Bible. And just to give you an overview of where we're going this morning, we're going to see a few things about heaven. First thing in chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, is the dilemma in heaven. And we need to see that dilemma. In the second place, we need to see the Lamb in heaven. And finally, point 3, we need to see the people of God in heaven which will draw our attention and our focus back to the alignment that is already present in the presence of God and the Lamb, so that that same worship and that same attention to the people of God will be ours down here on the earth, starting here in the church. For as we worship the Lamb, our priorities down here will be aligned with the Lamb's priorities for the people of God. Well, let's begin with the dilemma in heaven. We'll look again at verses one to four of Revelation chapter five. Let me read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, now that's God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, it's strange to think about there being a dilemma in heaven. This is the environment of absolute perfection. God, who is perfectly glorious in his holiness and who is perfectly holy In every aspect of existence, there is still a dilemma. And the dilemma is described this way. As God sits on his throne, as Revelation 4 describes it, with thunder and lightnings issuing from the throne, as the seven torches burn there in heaven, I believe indicating the presence of the Holy Spirit, as the sea of glass extends outward, separating God, from the rest of the heavenly attendants that are there, the 24 elders who are surrounding the throne with their white robes and their golden crowns and their harps and the bowls of incense, which indicate the prayers of the saints, and the creatures that fly around the four corners of the throne. The beasts, the creatures, the one with the face of a lion, the one with the face of an ox, the one with the face of a man, and the one with the the likeness of an eagle. They are full of eyes in the front and in the back and within, and with six wings they fly around, and they constantly sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the elders fall down continuously and say, amen. And the living creatures fall down and say, amen, and they worship. But the dilemma is God the Father holds in His hand, and it's not even clenched according to the grammar. It sits in His hand. And it's a scroll written on the inside and on the outside and sealed with seven seals. Scrolls in those days were pieces of parchment paper that were glued together with the watery glue that they had at the time. And once it dried, you could write on the inside. And then the point was to seal it up and to roll it up to seal it so that no one could take a peek inside without breaking the official seal. And hopefully it would get to the intended recipient so that that person could do that and then execute whatever will or whatever was written within that scroll. As it sits there in the hand of God the Father, imagine it, if you will, it's written on the inside and on the outside, but as it is sealed, there's one part that's rolled and sealed, and another part sticking out and sealed, and another part sticking out and sealed seven times. And as the whole heavenly host looks at that and they see this scene, An angel cries out, who is worthy to take this scroll and to open the seals? And there's silence as they look around. And no one, no one in heaven can do that. None of those beings, perfect as God created them to to be in his presence to worship and can do it. No one on earth. They scan the whole earth. No one, no one who had died can do this. What's the right response to this? Well, the right response to this, if you really understand what's happening here, is to weep loudly. What did John understand? We well, didn't know what was in the scroll yet. He's about to write it and tell us. Once each of those seals is broken, judgment upon judgment will unravel on the whole earth. And those who have turned away from God, those who are sinfully oppressing God's people and martyr and killing them, Those who are hurting those made in God's image and killing them will be judged. And someone, hopefully, can set that in motion. What happens if it doesn't happen? Then we, all of us, will continue to see the same sins oppress people for the rest of our lives, and then we'll die. And then there's no hope for us to have any hope after that life, because... Who's in control of all that's to come? The scroll, as we will find out, indicates the control of God over all of human history to come, as well as the judgments that must take place. John understood something of this, and he wept loudly. And I think by this point, he's wondering, where is the Lord? Where is Jesus? And the revelation continues to come to him. But pausing on the the dilemma for just a moment, can you identify John's dilemma and his weeping? And it's indicated because he says he he wailed. He was grieved by what he had experienced and was still experiencing, exiled as he was on the Isle of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus. He was grieved by those who, who were continuing to oppress the people of God. Can you cry out like those in Revelation 6.10? O sovereign Lord. These are the ones who were martyred, who are in heaven underneath the altar of God. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? As believers, we take our cue from those who are leading the worship of God, even in their laments in heaven over the dilemma that injustice is still in the earth, of all kinds. We must cry out to God for the murders of unborn children. How long, O Lord? For the attempted genocide of people groups in Africa or the Jewish nation. How long, O Lord? For the abuse of the young and the elderly. Sovereign Lord, how long? For the discrimination of others based on their ethnicity, the way they look or talk, or the color of their skin. Lord, how long? This is not the way that you willed it. Lord, please bring this to a swift conclusion so that those who love you can worship you in freedom and those who are on the outside who reject you will not oppress your people anymore. The truth is that all of us on this planet are made of the same blood from one man and one woman, meaning that we all are a part of one race, the human race. And it's indicated in this text that we're united in this dilemma in heaven. It indicates our plight. We have rebelled against the only holy God. We have turned away from him to rule over ourselves. And we would destroy one another with our rule, if given enough time and without the restraining grace of God. For we, by human nature, are separated from God and his love. And we are, by nature, according to Ephesians 2, Children of God's wrath. The seals, when they are broken, will unleash that wrath. And it's terrifying. Who is worthy to manage the righteous distribution of that judgment as it comes to the earth? We weep because of this. And it's right, friends, to weep because of the sins done to you and the sins that are in your own heart. But there is hope. For all who weep, who will instead look to the lamb. And at just the right time, one of the elders who is seated around the throne, one of those 24 elders, I believe is a, is a human, right? So the theories on the elders are, one, they are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Okay, that's one theory. The other theory is they are martyred people who God in his appointment has put around his throne to serve him and worship him in a unique status. He promises that in Revelation 2 and 3 to those who will endure to the end. They will be given a stephanos, a crown of life. Um, the The other theory is that maybe these are angels. These are another class of angels around the throne. But I fall into the camp not knowing who exactly they are. I do think they're human. And I think a human says to a fellow human, stop weeping. And he's not discouraging in how he says it. He says, weep no more. And what does he say? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. And that's our second point today. It's not just that we behold the dilemma in heaven. Dilemmas don't exist in heaven except to be solved by one person, the lamb. And this is what we see when we see the lamb. Verse 5 says some things about him and the rest of this chapter says some things about him, and the rest of Revelation reveals things about him. Lamb, that word lamb, it's an important word to the apostle John as he writes this apocryphal letter. He uses that word lamb 28 times. It's an extremely important designation about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Lambs were good for one primary thing, for killing. They were good for sacrifices. And of course, they would eat the meat, they would use the wool. But at the same time, certain of them were sacrifices that were used to atone or to cover the sins of the entire nation of Israel for one night a year. And this is what we see when we look here at this one who is worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does this mean well it comes from genesis chapter 49 back when israel first started the question was constant will this new nation survive that started back with abraham god promised that they will be more in number than the stars and the heavens and the sand and the sea well god promised way back then that one of the founding fathers of the israel nation jacob blessed his sons when he was dying and he said to Judah in chapter 49 his son Judah is a lion's cub he's crouched as a lion and he says further the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples so there's this vision that he has that from the line of Judah one will come who will rule with absolute authority not only his brothers but all the peoples of the world will come to him and bring him tribute and worship. Jesus, the Messiah, was born in the line of Judah. And he is identified here as the lion of the tribe of Judah, where Judah was a lion's cub, the great-great-grandfather of the Judah clan. He is yet subservient to the lion of the tribe of Judah who came from him. The next uh, designation, about who this lamb is, is he is the root of David. You could turn to Isaiah 11 if you choose, but I'll read some verses there to you. Um, Isaiah, speaking in the time of great trouble and turmoil within the kingdom of Judah, speaks about this one to come, this Messiah there in the presence of God. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, there's somebody coming out of the the stubble and the ruins of the nation of Judah. If you can imagine the, the complete destruction of everything in Israel until ultimately the trees are all destroyed and you look at one burnt out stump and where you thought it was dead, a little bit of greenery starts to come up. And Isaiah says, if you picture that, that's the way the Messiah will come. When you thought everything was lost and hopeless, wait for it, because a shoot is coming. But then it gets a little bit deeper, because it says in chapter 10 of that same book of Isaiah chapter 11, in that day, the root of Jesse, no longer just a shoot coming out, but the very root that causes any growth at all, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the people's. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We're told that he will judge not by what his eyes see or decide disputes between people by what his ears hear, but he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. There's this scene where the peoples of the earth again are coming to this one who's identified as the root of David, and they're bringing tribute to him. They're inquiring after him. They're seeking his wisdom and his guidance, his leadership. This is the Messiah who appears now at the end of time, unraveling human destiny according to the will of God. So from the oldest prophecies in the Old Testament to those in the middle when the kingdom was in trouble, to the very end, God never forgets what he promises. He never forgets his people to whom he makes those promises. And every single one of his promises is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the yes and amen to all God's promises. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you read about him in the Gospel of John, and you see the images of him in the Revelation of John, don't be terrified of Jesus unduly, but come to him and find in him one in whom you can trust. How do you know this? Based on two other descriptions of him he has as well as these titles, seven horns and seven eyes, and he is one who is standing even though he looks slain. So if we look at those next couple of points, as he's more fully described, he is standing as though slain. This is a graphic description, and it brings two things together. Jesus Christ's crucifixion, where he was slain on the cross by his enemies, and his resurrection, where he rises from the dead, standing in victory over sin and death, which he experienced at the hands of his enemies. So in heaven, when John sees him as a lamb, first of all, he doesn't look like a sheep, but he is symbolized by the imagery that floods John's mind of a lamb who died. And yet the lamb is not there with blood coming out, the lamb is standing. It's, it's a mystery how this paradox can be, yet it's true. He was slain, but he's standing. And it indicates both that which happened on behalf of the people, that which they needed, which they could not do, their leader died for them. But he did not stay dead, he rose from the dead. And John sees him as standing, even though he looks slain. The next description say he has seven horns and seven eyes. Or not to think automatically that Jesus has seven horns sticking out of his head or seven eyes on his face. These would be easily understood by the ancient world for two things that they were. One, having seven of anything means perfection. So if you have seven horns, that means that you have absolute military power over everyone and everything. If anyone tries to go against that one, he, he or she would be utterly destroyed and put underneath the feet to be a footrest for the conquering hero. And the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, I think it indicates for us what seven eyes would mean. It means total knowledge of all things and a sovereignty of his knowledge and control that extends everywhere. And by the mention of the the spirits of God, the Holy Spirit is at times mentioned in this way, and he is linked and tied to everything that Jesus ever did, and his ministry of obedience to the Father and of service to people loving God and loving others was tied to a ministry of the Holy Spirit perfectly filled with him at all times. So when you put these things together, you have a paradox of absolute power. And absolute self-giving love. Absolute power and absolute love. This is the lamb. As you look to him, he is standing, though slain, to say to you, I conquered your own sin, yet I live. So that as you trust in me, you too may live. And the gospel message goes further, that although his power is absolute... His control is absolute, his love likewise is absolute. And if you will come to him and bow before him, you can have this dilemma fixed and you can have a relationship with God. And this is why Jesus is worthy of worship. As we look at that concept about the lamb, that he is worthy of worship, he's worthy of worship first because he can take the scroll. And he can crack open those seals. Think again of the throne of God. God's face, his description of his body, that's never given. But in scripture, there's often a mention of God's hand. It's his hand of power. And I mentioned the grammar doesn't indicate that his hand is clenched around the scroll. It wasn't an issue of being strong enough to overpower God. It was an issue from the open hand of God to be worthy to take it. When we sing that song, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? All right, that whole is the perfection of all perfections. It's being someone who's so put together that there's nothing wrong with you anymore. And when we sing that, we feel the sting of it. Oh, no one is whole. I am not whole. But Christ is whole. He is whole. And this is what we find happening here. The worship that happened to him in this chapter is the same worship that happened to God the Father in chapter 4. If you look at verses 9 and 10, there's a new song that's sung to him. This was not sung to God the Father in chapter 4 because the lamb has done something that only he could do. And they sing to him, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Why is he worthy of this worship? Well, when it mentions this new song, it's tied directly to his worth based on his sacrifice and of his shedding of his own blood. The amazing reality that our Messiah died in our place and by his blood brought us to God to be his people. And they sang this song, and it was a reality that is introduced into the heavenly worship because of Christ and his accomplishments. I think about heaven someday, and I wonder about the songs we'll sing there. You ever wondered that? I mean, we we sing truth in our churches, and some of the songs we like better than others and we keep around for a long, long time. But I wonder what it's like in heaven when it says this is a new song, I think that they introduce songs of creativity and worship, approaching the throne with glad hearts and bringing the best of what we have. Sometimes I think they recycle some songs there. They probably do. I hope to take a few up there too. But regardless, this is worship at its best. The the elders are there. The living creatures are there. And, And let me mention those living creatures again with their eyes. This is going to sound gross to kids and some of you older guys too, but think about the the thing that God did. He made these living creatures with eyes all on the front, all in the back, and on the inside. Try to imagine that if you can, but why did God do that? Why did he make them with the face of an eagle, a man, an ox, and a lion? Well, I think those four things indicate various things about God's character. We could say that, but why all those eyes? Well, as they fly around those corners of the throne, looking at God all the time, looking at the scenes of what God is doing, even looking within and processing and seeing themselves, everything in their entire existence is all to the praise of God. They're never bored. Like one of the things I thought as a kid is when you get to heaven and you have a harp, it's boring sitting around on clouds singing songs all the time. Well, just watch these creatures when you get there. One, they're not boring. And two, their entire design is to instruct us that we cannot exhaust the glorious splendors of our God. Oftentimes down here on the earth, we get into so much trouble and we get into so many fights and so much conflict Because we are altogether too focused within and we don't have eyes on the outside to see the glorious God and to be overcome with His splendor and to fall at His feet in worship. That's what these things do. And they cry out in everything they see about God, amen, let it be, be that God and more. The amazing thing about our God is that He is never boring. And this lamb, when you hear this message of his sacrifice, let it never be boring to you. That cross will continue to be unveiled throughout eternity for all that it accomplished for you and me. It may seem little to you now, but in the the magnification of the glorious throne room of eternity, you will see that cross for its complete glory and Christ's absolute love. And his absolute power by that very instrument to save your life. If you don't know him today, then see in the worship of heaven that he is worthy of these songs. And maybe you will sing a new song today if you come to him. But note the worship in verse 12. He's worthy of the same worship as God the Father. In that verse, it says, worthy is the lamb who was slain To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These descriptions of what he is worthy of are heaped one on top of the other. And that's what God the Father got back in chapter 4. And what's amazing is you don't have God stand up from his throne and say, stop that heresy. You know, some, some people all over the world who believe that there's just one God may stand and declare that to say that Jesus is the divine Son of God, it is heresy. But God himself does not denounce the worship of his Son as heresy. I believe he is there smiling because these people finally get what he has known for all eternity in the adoration of his Son, that he too is God from God, perfect in every way, and worthy of all worship. Again, when our eyes see him, we see that he is worthy of the same worship as God the Father. And when when we see him, we see that he is worshiped alongside the Father. Verse 14, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. All right, so God the Father and Jesus, his son, together, side by side in the throne room of heaven are worshiped. A couple of notes here. Worship this God as he is revealed in the Bible. Not your imaginings of him, but as he is revealed here. Father, Son, and I believe the presence of the Spirit through those torches there. Do we understand all of how the throne room of heaven works? No, and praise God that we don't. This isn't a God that we can figure out, but we respond to all that we are based on all that he reveals himself to be, all that he is, spirit and truth, as Pastor Sam said, And I think one thing you notice, too, when you worship this lamb, if you're truly worshiping him and you actually start to take a peek of those around you, you find that they're very different from you. And it's a diverse crowd and it's beautiful. And that's our third point today. And as we close, see the people of God in heaven. See the people of God in heaven. This is what the songwriter Andrew Peterson was really going for. He wanted to communicate These verses, verses 9 and 10, with clarity for the people of God. Um, This is what it says. It says, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. This is what it says. There is one class of people in heaven. And it's the people who have been ransomed by christ's blood for god those are the people in heaven those are the humans in heaven those who have been ransomed for god by christ's blood so you're not going to find necessarily people worshiping in heaven because they're white because they're black because they're latino because they're vol fans because they're from the north You won't. You will find people worshiping there because, it doesn't mean they'll stop being some of those things, but they'll worship because their lives have been reclaimed for God by the blood of Christ. That's why they will worship. I want you to note too that these are people from every tribe and language and people and nation. I think these four terms are used because it's typical to use the number four. I'm not into all numerology. Please understand this. I'm just learning as I go, okay? I think number four indicates something about the earth. You think about the directions, north, south, east, and west, the four corners of the globe, the four winds. We use expressions like that in our language sometimes. What we find is that these people come from every single place where people are on the earth. It's a mixture of people from everywhere, and it's a beautiful thing. Notice that it does not say every race. Right there in verse 9, it doesn't say people from every race. And that's not because we get there and suddenly we make up some master race. That doesn't happen. The diversity that's down here on the earth in all of its thousands of variations, millions perhaps, is right there at the throne of God. And he delights in it because he's the creator of it. When I was a kid, we would sing a song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Have you ever sung that one before? Jesus loves the little children. And it went all over the world. And then we got to the colors. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And then I would go out of that classroom as a five or six year old boy and I would be thinking about what I had just sung about how Jesus loved all of them, and I saw all the white people in my church. And nobody really followed up on that and taught me, well, here's how to think about that, Joe, and here's what we're doing. But in the silence of it, I I just kind of interpreted a few things. Number one, I interpreted, well, I know that Jesus loves all the colors of people around the world, but since they're not here, it must mean that it's better for us to have different churches where the white people have their churches and the black people have their churches and Hispanic people have their churches, the Asian people have their churches. That's probably just what it should be like. Maybe that's just easier. Maybe that's what God wants. Interpretations I was pulling together in my little mind, and I'm not making that up. I can remember thinking things like that. I can remember later on hearing this message and seeing the image of heaven. I thought, well, maybe in heaven is where we'll actually get that right, but it's just too hard down here. Well, my encouragement is to you to start early with our kids. Sing those songs with them. Sing, Is He Worthy? Download that and listen to it in your car with the kids. You know, my, my six-year-old, my four-year-old girls sing that song and they love it. They don't know all, everything it means, but it's getting in their minds. And the point is, educate our kids and bring them into the reality of what Jesus wills for this world. He has people everywhere that he is calling out of various strands and corners of the earth to be his people. And he wants it to be present and a reality here where we meet in a local church. The more diversity that we see, the more we can celebrate. And I can remember another thing I heard growing up. I heard that one of the reasons we don't have churches with white people and black people or Hispanic people or Asian people together is because they might actually like each other and some of them might get married. And that's probably not a good thing. let me tell you something. The one thing that you have to be concerned about when it comes to interracial marriage is not that there's actually different races. There's one, remember? But one thing that you need to consider is there might be a consideration of two, but here are the races, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and those who have not. So when it comes to getting married... If you're redeemed by the blood of Christ and somebody else is redeemed by the blood of Christ and you happen to be from two different backgrounds and even different colors, get married if God is in it. You might say that it's a trouble for the kids who come. Well, I'd say that comes from our own sinful hearts and I'd say the glory is in the diversity that God can bring as a result. God wants diversity around his throne and if you have kids that come in in a marriage that blesses and honors God, the beauty of it is there's even more diversity around the throne of God. So if you will receive it, I just corrected there the past two generations of the American church and our understandings and beyond. If you will receive it, there you go, that was free. <laughs> so my friends, I'm thankful for the various ways that I'm growing. I told you at the beginning, I didn't quite catch that it was only white people in that video. And I don't take a step back and say, oh, I'm so bad for being white. Instead, what I say is, no, I I think I just missed something there, that there are other people that will be around the throne of Jesus. It's not just going to be people who look like me. And I need to be conscious of that and befriending them and seeking them out. Our international ministry here is doing that. And there is a blessed international diversity here. And I love it. It's, It's encouraging to my heart. And it's a corrective to the age-old problems and the dilemmas that I bring into the church. And you know, that's the heart of this series. The heart of this series is not to call out, although we, we do so, if it's here, a, a, a racial systemic uh, problem, all right? So if there is systemic racism, yeah, we call that out. But the, the more likely thing here is that we still have old tapes running through our minds about what the church should be like based on how we were raised instead of what Jesus wills the church to be like based on what he has accomplished everywhere eventually friends we will reign with Jesus on the earth beside people from all corners of this globe on a new earth when God comes from heaven It makes a new heaven that comes down here to this earth that he remakes, and we will reign with him forever. And there is no end to that. And the glory of that is that as we do that, even now, we are a kingdom and priest to God. Adam and Eve failed in their charge to reign over the earth. The kingdom of Israel failed, but where they failed, Jesus did not fail. And he is speaking even this morning to say, gather to me my people from the four corners of the world, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and that they would be my ransomed, blood-bought people. So my friends, as I bring this to a close, I want you to consider that our charge in making any crossover for the ministry of reconciliation is to consider our own hearts first, And where there may be misunderstanding, there may be confusion on the part of somebody else, not to repent of how God made you, but to seek to understand what they may be going through so that you can minister the grace of God to them. And ultimately, the hope is to give them the hope of our Lamb and to give them a vision of Him so that they too will fall at His feet and worship Him, giving everything they have from every people and tribe and and language and tongue that we would all come and gather around his throne and give him the worship that he is due.